Welcome to the Pacific Spine and Pain Society podcast for residents, fellows, and new attendings. A casual conversation, like the ones had after a presentation, in the floral suite, or in the clinic, designed to give you insight about interventional spine, pain medicine, neuromodulation, regenerative medicine, and minimally invasive spine techniques. And now, here's your host, Dr. Daniel Orlovich. Hello, PSPS community. I am gathered here today with Natalie Strand. Dr. Strand, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a very proud member of PSPS. I am an anesthesiologist with a fellowship in interventional pain medicine. I'm currently an assistant professor here at Mayo Clinic's Division of Pain Medicine in Arizona, and I'm really happy to be here today. Wonderful. Thank you. We'll be tackling a big topic today, but get us started. It's about the state of gender equity in pain medicine. What are your thoughts about that and where are we at in the field? You know, obviously, it's a very male-dominated field. The latest data I saw was about 19% female compared to male. So definitely the minority. I think it is improving. And I think there are two questions. One is, you know, why aren't more women going into the field? And the second is, why aren't women who are currently in the field represented to the proportions of which we're currently making up the percentage of the field? So there's a lot of things to improve on. I think Mm -hmm. like many fields of medicine, we're making progress and this is Mm -hmm. coming to the forefront of people's awareness. But I still think there's a lot to go as far as educating people on what we can do, what it means to be an ally, what it means to be an upstander, you know, any personal commitments that our male allies might feel comfortable making to try to elevate women in the playing field as far as getting on stage and getting on publication. So I think as a field, we have some work to do, but I think it is going in the right direction at this time. Nice. And you mentioned a few terms, ally and upstander for the listeners out there who may not be familiar with those terms. Can I go ahead and give us a definition and kind of give us kind of practical advice for the, the ally and upstander terms? Absolutely. So within medicine at large, there's a a big movement called he for she, which is when you kind of realize that this isn't a woman's problem to fix. You know, typically the people at the decision making level when there's not gender equity aren't the minority gender. So we do rely heavily on our male allies to help promote gender equity. And an ally is just what it sounds like. It's somebody who is a friend of the cause, who has it in their mind to bring resolution and improve gender equity. So when someone identifies themselves as an ally, as he for she, they're making a personal commitment to do their personal work and also leverage their personal influence to improve the state of gender equity in the field. And an upstander is really somebody who witnesses something and also makes a personal commitment to call it out in the moment. For example, I was in a meeting last week as the only female physician, and I made a comment on something I thought should be changed. And it wasn't supported. Immediately, Mm. it was just stated to be an error. And then a male colleague said the exact same thing. And then the moderator said, oh, you know what? That's a good idea. So that might have been gender bias, but the the upstander part was that the male colleague then said, I'm actually just echoing what Dr. Strand said. Mm. So acted as an upstander by, number one, highlighting what I said, or amplifying is another term, in, you know, in the lingo, amplifying what I said, but also, you know, giving me credit. So in that moment, he was acting as an upstander, seeing that my comment had been dismissed. 
Oh, that's awesome. And then you kind of mentioned a few other ways, obviously, at these meetings. Anything else that you can think of that you'd like to share with the listeners? You also mentioned kind of publishing as well, collaborating, networking, organizations like PSPS. Kind of tell us other kind of practical ways that people can be an ally and upstander and kind of promote the gender equity movement here. Well, there, there are a lot of ways to be an ally and an upstander. I mean, some simple things. If you see a patient saying something to one of your female colleagues and you're a male that doesn't seem appropriate to you to say something in the moment. If you're at a meeting or at a talk and the male physicians are being being introduced as doctor and the female physicians are being introduced by their first name in the moment, say, oh, let's address her as Dr. Strand, not Natalie. So it's about using your influence in the moment to give a voice to the person that may be the recipient of bias. It doesn't just have to be gender. Some of the other trickier things, but I think they're equally important. Some people have taken a pledge called the No Mantle Pledge. And for Mm -hmm. those of you unfamiliar, the Mantle is an all-male panel. So speakers can use their influence to say, well, who else is invited to present on this topic? And if there are no female faculty that are represented, you might say, I've made a pledge not to appear on any Mantle's And I am unfortunately unable to participate and would like to give my spot to a female colleague, or I will participate. And I would also suggest that you bring on this expert. A similar, and again, this is tricky because sometimes it depends on the number, but, you know, a pledge to be on a, a manuscript that has diversity as well. Just this year, I saw three different pain papers with over 30 authors without a single female author. And I don't know what the right number is. You know, if it's four authors, does it have yeah. to be, you know, I don't know. But yeah. if you have 30 authors and not a single one is female, to me, that's a gross, you know, misrepresentation of the field. So I think that you can use your influence to participate in things that represent your personal stance on the importance of gender equity and encourage organizers to invite female faculty. You know, I, I had a training just a, last month that I was invited to. And I said, who's your faculty? And they told me. And then I followed up with, who's your female faculty? Mm. And after a pause, they said, well, I think we could get this person. And they did. So I think a lot of people want to do this work. It's just hard to see your own blind spot. So it's not in an angry way. It's not in a shaming way. It's just, you know, as an ally, look for who's represented and and do your best to use your influence to help that. Yeah, totally. One of your comments, it, it kind of reminded me of a story. I think I was a CA1, and I was talking to a patient in pre-op, and my attending at the time was a younger female, and the patient kept on looking at me like I was, quote, the real doctor. And I know this happens, unfortunately, all too often, but I told the patient, like, look, like, this is, she is my boss. She knows much more than I do. I am training. But you mentioned, you know, kind of the bias in the patients and then in the field as well. So unfortunately, that happens. Tell us a little bit. You mentioned one of the questions. It's dominated by men right now. You said 19% females. What are your thoughts on why that is? I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I don't know. Because if you look at, I'm an anesthesiologist too. So if you look at females going into post-anesthesia fellowships, females are going into cardiac anesthesia OB anesthesia. So it's not that females aren't going into challenging fellowships. And you could argue that the lifestyle in interventional pain medicine is better 
than OB anesthesia and then cardiac anesthesia, you know, by and large. So it's not years of training. It's not lifestyle. I don't know if it's because, you know, they say you can't beat what you don't see. Maybe we aren't recruiting women into the space. Maybe it's because we're sort of sandwiched between orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery, which are also mm-hmm. heavily male dominated. But I, I think it's a huge miss. I think this is an excellent field for women for several reasons. And it, it remains a curiosity to me other than maybe they just don't see themselves represented during their training. And so they don't get recruited into the field, but I don't really know. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question for the listeners out there who might be entertaining the idea of going into pain. I'll put you on the spot. You mentioned kind of the, the benefits that you're a pain physician. You know, I'm training to be one kind of, can you try to sell them on it just so maybe from this podcast, if they were listening, they might kind of take a second look at pain. Listen, anybody who's listening to this who hasn't committed to pain should go into pain. It is literally the best job in medicine. <laughs> you know, I I missed continuity of care when I was in the OR. I loved the procedures. I loved the acuity, but I missed the continuity. And after a long case, you'd be so attached to the patient outcome and they may not even know who you are. So you get to use those procedural skills here, but you get the longitudinal benefit of a relationship in a very narrow scope. So you get to be an expert. You get to know your patients. They get to know you. You get to enjoy what I think is the benefit of having a procedural-based specialty. So you're really making a difference in people's lives. You get to see that difference come to fruition. So I think it's very emotionally satisfying. But at the same time, if you have a procedural bent, like a lot of people do who go into anesthesia, for example, you get to flex that muscle as well and be in the procedure suite. So it really, to me, combines lifestyle, outcomes, continuity of care, a narrow scope within which to be an expert and using your hands for procedures. So I think it's the best field in medicine. I tend to agree. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Switching gears in terms of kind of, you know, the biases we all have. Can you talk about that? How do we evaluate our own bias in terms of the gender issue? Well, I think the first step is really normalizing it. There's a lot of shame that can come with people saying, well, I'm not I'm not sexist. I'm not racist. I would never do that. But the truth is, if we can all admit that we all have biases, every Mm -hmm. single one of us has bias against gender or age or race or socioeconomic class or education level. I mean, there's a lot of different biases. And I think once you acknowledge that it's a normal part of being human, it, it lets you look at it with a little less shame. There are bias calculators. There's a Harvard bias calculator that you can just find online. And it's a very simple, it takes just a few minutes and it can tell you your level of bias based on word association. So mm-hmm. I think that's a really simple, free, non-judgmental way to kind of look at some of your own bias. And I think once you know that you have bias, one of the big things is please don't go to somebody to teach you about it. So if you mm. might have revealed that you have gender bias, Don't go to your female colleagues and ask them to fix it or teach you. Mm -hmm. The literature is out there. Google Mm -hmm. it, read about it, take it upon yourself. Same thing with if if it comes back that you have some racial bias, you know, don't don't go to your black colleague and ask them to teach you. You know, we can do our own work. There are plenty of resources out there. But I I think normalizing it is the first step and and not being ashamed of it. Just be willing to look at it and, and do your best to improve it. Nice. Yeah, like that's an honest evaluation and kind of gives us hope for the future. Like we can take action, which I think that speaks to a lot of pain physicians as well. There's something that we could try to do about it. Absolutely. 
tell us for the, the female pain physicians in the field, we talked about kind of increasing the pipeline to the field, but to the people already in the field, the females kind of, what is being done maybe from a national organization, maybe more local, statewide, PSPS, CalCIP, stuff like that, kind of what community, what resources are available out there for those physicians? So I think it's very important for us to be connected with our societies, both on the state level, regional level, and a national level. If we want representation, I think it's very important for us to offer up our time and our expertise so that when we are asked, they know who we are, they know how to find us. I think societies play an excellent role in improving the representation. So I I think for females, just to find that connectivity, I'm not a big proponent of like women need to have female mentors. In fact, a study came out recently talking about the importance of male mentors for females. So mm. it's it's not like, oh, you can only have female mentors, but you mm-hmm. might want to connect with some other women in the field just to collaborate and grow and just share your struggles and your achievements together. So to that end, there's women in pain management. There's the SIG group of ASRA for women in pain medicine. You know, there's the NANS group. So I think at any of the major societies, there's usually a subgroup for women to be able to network and connect and to get to know each other. Awesome. That's excellent. In terms of kind of common misperceptions, you've obviously read about this, you've thought about it a lot, but for people maybe who might be newer to the subject or don't know as much, what are some common misperceptions or common misunderstandings that people might have? I think one misperception is there's just not women available. There's tons of women available. And I've heard a lot of organizers say in the past, like, oh, well, we just don't have women available or we ask them, they don't say yes. And the truth is, well, if you only are asking the same four people, they can't say yes to everything. So making a personal effort to know more than like four (laughs) female speakers as an organizer is really important. And so if if you don't have a deep pipeline, that's, that's the issue. It's, it's, you know, reaching out and and creating those connections, because I'm sure any organizer, you know, probably can list 50 men that they call on, but maybe only four women. And and that's, that's a relationship problem. That's a knowledge problem. That's not, you know, the four women that get asked to do everything, you know, not necessarily their problem. So I think the misconceptions that women just aren't out there, that's not true. They are out there. They just need to kind of be found. And I think another misconception is that women aren't procedural, you know, so Mm. with more of the heavier kind of surgical interventions that the women might be more of like a headache expert or a pelvic pain expert Uh. or a fibromyalgia expert. And then the men might be more into neuromodulation or spinal fusion devices. But I think that's a very common misperception. What probably happens is that men are invited initially to bring the technology to the field or they're mm-hmm. the PIs that get invited to do the initial study. And then it's that's the network that grows. And then there are the trainers. And so I think engaging women, you know, at an earlier level and knowing that women are also heavily procedural and they also like the surgical interventions. I think that's just kind of a misconception as well within our field. That's interesting. If I can make it personal, you do a lot of neuromodulation. What's your story? How did you get involved with that? You know, I, I think my story is the same as any other fellow's story. You know, you just kind of do it. And and again, I, I, I don't think I'm different than a, uh, any male or female fellows that have come before me. I think we all do neuromodulation. It's just sort of the representation on stage and in industry is more heavily male. I don't think the practice mm. is more heavily male. Yeah, yeah. Well said. In terms of kind of what fellows are being trained for now, or is there anything that they can address in their day-to-day activities, either addressing their bias, addressing kind of their 
the view that they have and what they want to go into. You said sometimes people are pushed towards the fibromyalgia, the pelvic pain. Other people are pushed into the, the fusion devices. Any recommendations, any advice that you'd give to fellows listening out there? Well, first of all, I really like treating pelvic pain. And I also really like treating fibromyalgia. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not yeah. saying not to do those things. I think what I would say to any fellow, male or female, is to do what you love. If you're a male and you want to do more non-interventional pain medicine, do that. If you're a female and you want to do sacroiliac joint fusions all day long, do that. So I, I think for anybody just to realize what your passion lies, where your passion lies and to follow that. And to also realize you're never really too early in your career to be influential, especially when it comes to gender equity. A lot of the younger people in our field are the people that this resonates more with, that this, mm -hmm. you know, you've kind of come up with this in yeah. your environment of gender equity and racial equity and bias and diversity and inclusion. And that makes younger physicians more influential, more knowledgeable, no, more exposed. So don't feel like you have to wait till you're senior to exert your influence. This is, it's like in tech, you know, sometimes the newer, younger folks are actually the ones that have more data and more education in this. So feel free to flex that muscle as a fellow, as a new partner. And I think that everybody's going to really value what new fellows have to bring to the gender equity space in pain medicine. I like that. And then one thing you wrote, I sent out the questions before, I thought that was really interesting. You said that basically this is not something that if we improve gender equity, it will take opportunities away from men. It's something that will improve the entire field. It will improve the care that patients receive. It'll improve kind of just the entire field, like I said, and everyone benefits. I think that was really nice as well. And I think that's very true. For people out there, kind of, can you speak about your thoughts about that statement? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's a very natural first response to feel like someone's taking your piece of the pie. But there's a lot of studies outside of medicine that show that diversity and inclusion actually improves productivity, it improves creativity, it improves client and patient experiences. So what you're doing is you're just increasing the creativity and productivity of your group. You're not decreasing anything. So, you know, if you add diversity and inclusion to a panel, for example, even if it's regional diversity, even if it's age diversity, even if it's, you know, it's gender, it's yeah. race, whatever it is, or it's PM&R and anesthesia and neurology, you're just going to get better information. You're just going to get more perspective. So that's always a win. That That's always a win for the field. It's always a win for the patient. So again, I think there's enough work to go around. I don't think anybody's going to yeah. lose an opportunity, but there's a lot to be gained from increasing gender diversity and other diversity and inclusion criteria at, at every level, the practice level, the society level, the leadership level, and the publishing level. Nice. I like that. And then in your crystal ball, kind of where do you think we're going in the future in terms of this issue in pain medicine? You know, I, I think we're going towards including gender diversity as something that we look at all the time. I really hope that journal editors start to look at the gender makeup of authorship groups and maybe in feedback kind of query, like was a female author included and and why not, you know, if there's mm -hmm. a certain threshold of authors. Not that things can't get published. Again, I'm not trying to to suggest that things shouldn't get published without right. gender, but I think it'll become a more normalized component of publication. Certainly, you know, there's Mantle Watch USA, and even the term Mantle <laughs> has been, you know, very 
everybody knows what that means now. So, yeah. you know, that that's already kind of come to be normal. If you see a panel of 15 males, I think most people at this point say, whoa, that's all men. That's weird. So I think as a field, we're just moving towards that becoming one of the normal things that we just kind of review in the background when we see who's on faculty, when we see who's presenting at society meetings, when we see who's presenting at webinars, when we see who's being published in journals. So I, I think as that continues to go, women will just continue to be promoted, highlighted, emphasized, sponsored, mentored, elevated, and all the things that we need to increase our visibility and influence in the field so that we're represented at leadership levels at the same proportion that we're present in the field itself. I love it. I love it. It's wonderful. It's a very hopeful. And like you said, people, the understanding is increasing. People are taking practical actions. They're recognizing their own bias as well. So, you know, it's very hopeful for the, for the future as well. And it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but the PSBS is committed to kind of diversity and gender inclusion as well. Absolutely. I think the leadership at PSPS is very committed to diversity and inclusion, and there have been some very intentional actions with the meeting and who's represented at the board level. So I think PSPS has been very at the forefront here in making sure that equity and inclusion is represented as one of the key values of the society. Wonderful. Dr. Strand, any kind of final pearls of wisdom for the listeners out there? Any thoughts, anything you think I should have asked or forgot to ask that you'd like to share with the listeners? No, I just like to thank everybody who's been an upstander, everybody who's been an ally. I really appreciate it. And those of you who hear this and never really thought what it meant to be an ally before, please consider becoming an ally and intentionally contributing towards equity in this space. Wonderful. Dr. Natalie Strand, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We want to continue this engagement. Please visit the PSPS website, join the email newsletter, watch the webinars, or attend the conference.